If you want to learn to play guitar, you're not going to learn it from someone talking to you. You're not going to learn it while you're sitting on your butt. You got to play guitar and you're going to play it badly at first, but with enough rep repetition and enough structure and support in the learning environment, um, you can slowly develop the skills. So, so that's the mentality um, that we brought in. We have a technology called Pure Scholar where we were really trying to think how can we give students really structured, rich practice, um, engaging skills. Welcome back, listeners, to College Cast. I'm your host, Trevor Potts. For a final episode of Season 1, we're joined by our good friend Steve Jordans, cognitive psychologist and professor at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, for a deeper dive into how EdTech has impacted the way we learn, ways we can combat anxiety, and how we can generate a growth mindset to boost our human connections. It's a great conversation, so let's not waste any more time and dive right into our conversation with Steve Jordans. Okay, welcome back, listeners, to another episode of College Cast. Uh, this week, we're lucky to be joined by Steve Jordans, uh, cognitive psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, for a conversation on mental health, ed tech, human connection, and other topics. Uh, Steve is also director of the Advanced Learning Technologies Lab at U of T and head of the ed tech company, Cognito.com. So thanks, Steve, for joining us. We're happy to have you on the podcast. Yeah, great to be with you here, Trevor. Yeah, I think maybe we can get started just to, before we get into these topics, maybe look at, uh, for those that maybe aren't aware of your background, maybe you could give us a, a Cole's Notes summary of your specialty as a professor of psychology and, and kind of what your research looks at. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think to a large extent, I've become a, a prototypical psychology generalist of a, of a sort, um, in the sense that my teaching has been sort of all over the board. So I've taught all sorts of psychology courses at the University of Toronto, also online at Coursera.org. Um, and they include introductory psychology and the history of psychology. So, so I kind of know psychology really well. And, and quite often I am asked to bring psychological perspectives on various issues, et cetera. Uh, so that's always kind of fun. Uh, on the research side, I was trained initially as a cognitive psychologist and especially did a lot of work on human memory, trying to understand um, the different kinds. So there's not a single thing called human memory. There are different systems and how they all interact. Uh, but then I started teaching at some point and I just fell in love with the classroom, uh, to be quite honest. And my research kind of shifted at that point. Um, I mean, you can kind of think of it as applied memory or applied cognition, I guess. But I kind of moved from the lab uh, and, and started to see the classroom as, as my lab. And specifically, I, I really enjoy large class teaching, which I know it sounds kind of odd to some people, uh, but it's sort of that performance aspect. I, I really enjoy it. But I also want my students to have a really rich, deep education. And so I started thinking, how can I bring um, powerful educational experiences to them at scale? And that kind of took me to technology. Uh, and that's where the Advanced Learning Technologies Lab uh, started up, where we do do a lot of research, sometimes evaluating other third party technologies, usually just trying to look for efficacy. Does it do what it says it does? And usability, does it do it in a way where teachers will use it and students will actually uh, you know, enjoy and appreciate the experience. Uh, but we also create some of our own technologies as well from that lab, including, you know, one that's sort of out there. And that's why uh, we have that ed tech company as well. So that's, that's, that's me in a nutshell, a very, very big nutshell. Yeah. And that's a good summary of what that looks like and how the uh, journey transitions over time, starting with studies and getting into 
teaching. And I think we can't really talk about education without looking at COVID. You know, it's colossal impact on student learning, teaching, education in general. We're 21 months or so into this pandemic, right? And uh, it's had impacts not only on student mental health and housing and all sorts of things that way, but it's had this massive impact on education. And, And from your perspective, you know, having taught before the pandemic and now during the pandemic, I just want to get a sense of what your concerns are, what you've seen on the front line and how COVID impacts education, teaching, engagement, those sorts of things. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny in the sense of what, what I've learned during this whole period, because even pre-pandemic, I was very much in the digital education world. So I mentioned I taught MOOCs and et cetera, and I did a lot of stuff um, that were where the lectures are available by streaming video and all all this kind of stuff. So I was always sort of at the forefront of a lot of those digital approaches, I think. And so at first, when the pandemic hit, um, I I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting. It's going to bring some other educators kind of into my world. They're going to learn about some of the the tools and stuff they could be using. And so I thought it was a potential interesting opportunity um, for more traditional educators to, to kind of dip their feet into the more current digital world. Um, But what I learned from all this, which was really interesting, is how much students um, want the rest of the educational experience. So so there's what happens in the classroom. Um, Even there, students, I now understand, really love lectures. So I I started giving some optional lectures this term simply because students were saying, we want to feel that. We want to see what it's like to have a prof in a classroom. And and I've now got an appreciation for that more traditional aspect of it. Um, But also, and I know this is something um, kind of near and dear to both of our hearts from some of the other work we've been doing, everything that happens in the hallways, everything that happens in the line of Tim Hortons, everything that happens in those student clubs, you know, that is such a huge part of the student experience that is now gone during the pandemic. And so we have a lot of students doing their coursework, you know, getting getting that stuff underway, but they're not really having the rest of that experience. And and that now concerns me. I, you know, I really see the value of, of all of that, um, that need to connect with other students and, and to learn the skills of, of doing that. Uh, and that's that's the biggest concern I have and, that, and the biggest reason I hope we can get out of this soon and start having students on campus again. Mm-hmm. And I know how you mentioned um, this idea of connecting on campus through through other ways besides teaching. But when we're talking about these new opportunities, even for um, education and for teaching delivery, one thing I know you're very passionate about is ed tech. And not only that, but touching on this idea of formative peer assessment. Maybe we can kind of back it up a little bit and maybe we can give us a, a summary of how you see ed tech and um, kind of what it is for those that maybe aren't aware of these new opportunities in education. Yes, sure. Thank you for that. Um, for me, you know, the real passion that drives my ed tech interest is related to what we sometimes call the skills gap. Um, that idea that, you know, employers really want people to come into their business that have good problem solving skills, which is critical thought, creative thought, good communication and collaboration skills. And they've sometimes sort of looked to universities and say, you know, come on, guys, you're giving us students that know their tech stuff really well. You know, they know they know the coursework, but they don't have these sort of we sometimes call them skills of success, 21st century skills, soft skills in some cases. Um, and so the challenge for me and and I mean, just to give you context, my fall course is an 1800 student course. So it's me and 1800 students. Um, and the question is, how can I give them some sort of experience um, where they can start to develop these skills from year one? So that's sort of the challenge that I've always had in mind. And just to give you a sense of 
you know, how this all comes together as a cognitive psychologist and as someone that studies memory, I know that the way we learn information is very different from how we learn skills. Uh, my favorite example of that is if you'd like to learn a lot about guitars, you could go to a great one hour lecture. Um, and if somebody structured their lecture well and delivered it well, you would leave knowing a whole lot more than, than you knew when you came in. If you want to learn to play guitar, you're not going to learn it from someone talking to you. You're not going to learn it while you're sitting on your butt. You got to play guitar and you're going to play it badly at first, but with enough rep repetition and enough structure and support in the learning environment, um, you can slowly develop the skills. So, so that's the mentality um, that we brought in. We have a technology called Peer Scholar where we were really trying to think how can we give students really structured, rich practice um, engaging these skills. And the way it works, just to you know, make it concrete, is students start the way they normally would do. They create an assignment according to some professor's instructions. Uh, we'll call that composition. But here's where it gets interesting. And they now do a step two where they see the compositions submitted by, say, five or six of their peers. They're presented anonymously. Um, they're, they're randomly selected. And we now ask the student to sort of play the role of the teacher, to go through each activity, uh, go through each pure uh, composition and analyze it according to various questions we ask them. But the most critical question, of course, is if this person were going to change one thing, what one thing should they change that you think would maximally improve the quality of their work and how should they change it? So basically giving constructive feedback to, to the student. Um, now, I, I just have to say, we give them a whole lot of support through micro learning about how to give feedback before we start having them give feedback. But while they're giving feedback, if you kind of think about answering that question, you know, if you're looking at a piece of work and you have to answer that, you first have to read it all carefully. That's called receptive communication, learning how to shut up and listen. Many of us need to work on that skill more, uh, myself probably included. Um, you combine that with critical thought because you're looking for potential areas of improvement. So, you know, what are spots in this paper where I can see the potential to improve? And so that takes critical thought. When you find some, you have to think, okay, what do I have any advice for this person? Can I see a way to improve that? That's creative thought. Um, and then uh, of course, eventually you have to pick that one thing and you have to now express your opinion to that person. So that's expressive communication. Um, and while you're going through these, you're doing that first with peer one, then peer two, then peer three. So you're exercising these skills in a very structured way, getting a lot of repetition across different contexts. And of course, you're also seeing the work of other peers and you can't help but think how that compares to yours. And so you're getting what we call a metacognitive hit. You're getting a real clear sense of where your work fits. Um, and that's just the second step. <laughs> so while you're giving feedback to peers, they're giving feedback to you. So in that third step, we really focus on what, we, what is sometimes called the growth mindset, teaching students how to learn from feedback. And the thing is, that's not easy. In fact, it's not natural. Um, we're, I know we're going to talk about anxiety in a number of ways here, and, and we can almost introduce a concept here. Anytime we feel under threat, we kick in what's called the fight or flight reflex. We want to either fight whatever's threatening us or get away from it. And so if we have a bunch of people saying, here's what's wrong with your work right now, we want to fight it or we want to flee it. And, and if we allow students, they often flee. About 50% don't even read feedback. Um, so we now push them through an analysis of the feedback. Every bit of feedback, they have to go through an analysis, engaging critical thought, creative thought, et cetera, as they go. And then they eventually get an opportunity to revise their work from that feedback before they submit it to the prof. 
Uh, and so they like that. They like that opportunity to make their work better, get a better mark before the prof sees it. They also love seeing the work of their peers and, and they do value that whole process. So at any rate, that's just to give you a concrete example of, you know, taking an 1800 student class, but suddenly it's like this group of students who are trying to help each other improve exercising all these skills along the way. And of course, we're doing research on it the whole uh, all along the way as well. So we have a lot of papers showing that, you know, this does enhance critical thought, it does enhance metacognitive ability, um, and, and that sort of approach. So so there's a concrete idea of the, the ed text. Sure. And then peer scholar is kind of uh, an exploration of these, uh, you talked about constructive learning methods, uh, challenging creative thought. So peer scholar, maybe you can give us a little look into a little peek behind the curtain of what it what it is. Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes, I always like to say when you see the word educational technology, don't be impressed by the word technology. Um, it's all about the education that it, that it supports. Technology just does logistics, um, does logistics really well. But if you imagine what I just described, you know, we have a bunch of people submitting compositions and then we want to randomly assign some to some people. And then eventually, once they assess them, we got to get them back to the right people. That's what the technology is really good at, is managing this kind of process. Uh, and so Peer Scholar allows you to manage that process I just talked about. And it allows you to do it in like group work settings. I'm sorry, I should be saying teamwork settings. I'm getting better at my group work teamwork. And that's, it's just a silly distinction I'm sensitive to right now. So you have teamwork projects going on. You can have case studies. Um, and so we just try to bring this process to as many educational contexts as possible. Um, and, and it just manages. And, and I kind of say it that way, but I think it's important for us all to think of the technology, you know, the technology we're using to do the podcast, it just manages stuff. The podcast is as good as you or I, um, and similarly, is as good as the education that it embodies. Yeah. I think that's a, a good exploration into if anyone's taken a Coursera class, I didn't know that there was a particular name to it, but I've noticed that in one of the French classes I took with Coursera that they were using that kind of formal um, peer assessment method. Yeah, it's often the classic sort of end final project in a lot of these courses is a, is a peer assessment project, which is kind of nice because it also brings the learners together and allows you to you know comment on someone else's work and them to comment on yours. It's an interesting experience. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing I noticed in particular that you've been working on is is having Coursera classes, particularly for emergency services. Uh, so uh, emergency responders, healthcare workers, police. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about, you know, where did that inspiration come from? A lot of these classes are now available. And maybe you can talk about what are they looking at? What's in the curriculum that kind of really speaks to this need? Sure. Um, this would be a bit of a long path, but I'll try to make it a, a quick path. But I'm there's somebody at my university, University of Toronto, um, who is in charge of kind of keeping an eye on digital innovations and, and, you know, dipping our feet in if there's something. And so when this MOOC world started, massive open online classes, when they first started, there was this notion that they were going to eat universities alive. This was the future of education. Universities were the past. There's a whole lot of interest in it. And I thought, wow, this is provocative. I always like provocative stuff. And, and this person at our university named Lori Harrison, she's the director of online learning. Um, she reached out and said, hey, would you be willing to do one of these? And and she knows me as now sort of, you know, Mikey, that kid that lead anything. I'm kind of the, when it comes to tech or ed tech, I'll try anything and let, let's see how it works. And so I originally created a, an introduction to psychology MOOC years ago, um, which now has almost uh, 500,000 people, I think, or, or maybe 400,000 people who registered, which is pretty kind of mind blowing. Um, but that was sort of it. But that, then I had some relationships and then the pandemic hit. 
And when the pandemic hit, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a story because we all have the story. I was in uh, New Orleans uh, the weekend before, and I was doing what people do in New Orleans, and that's not watching television. So I wasn't watching television. I was I was having a good time. Um, and then when we came back, it was obvious that things were hitting the fan. The NBA was shutting down. All of that was happening. Um, and I realized in the week that followed, I was really anxious. Um, I, I, this, this was really making me uncomfortable. And when I thought about it, I was just saying, of course I'm anxious. This is a threat and it's a mysterious threat and it's a dangerous threat. And this is exactly what kicks in this anxiety response. So I understood it really well. And, and I, and because I understood it, I felt like I could reach out to my family and say, here's some tips and strategies that we're all going to need as we go through this. And then the moment I did that, I thought, geez, you're a psychology educator. You're supposed to be educating and people could use this, this education right now. So I reached out to my U of T and, and Coursera contacts and said, if I throw together a course, can we get this up there quick and, and get some advertising? And, and so we did. I think it took us about two weeks to create a course that's, it, it has a, a sort of scary title. It's called Mind Control, Managing Anxiety During COVID-19 or something like that. But what I really mean by mind control is that your mind can run away with you um, and that there is this fight or flight reflex that kicks in when we're under threat. It's really a very simple biological reaction, but it can put us into one of these anxious states. And if we don't understand what's going on, we aren't empowered to, to kind of get, get in there and control it. But once you understand it, you start to realize, oh, there are things I can do. Uh, and so that's what that course was really uh, about. And, and that one's already had about 150,000 people, I think, go through it. Uh, but, but that one is all about just sort of educating people about what anxiety is, talking about some tips. I, I think I had a chapter on lockdown, um, not lockdown, but whatever. When we're all at home, how can we do that in a, in a way that's, that's best for us and our family? Uh, and so it was a chance to just take education and put it out there. Then kind of oddly, the police saw that and said, we love that. Um, our officers are really dealing, they're always dealing with a lot of anxiety, but during a pandemic, of course, they're the ones that have to enforce the pandemic rules. They're the ones interacting with anti-vax sort of populations and all this stuff. And they bring that home potentially to their family. And so there was additional anxiety, but from the police force, they said, your course is great, but cops don't have time for that. And, and it's sort of too general. Could you make something that's much more specific to the police, much more efficiently delivered? Uh, and so I did that. Now I give regular talks to the police force. I, I got this connection with them. And then we did one for healthcare workers. And so it just kind of snowballed where we tried to find people who could really use that information and then really present it in a way that would fit the, the limitations of how they work. And, and in a lot of cases, they're working long shifts, you know, they're not going to watch a, a one hour lecture at night, but if you have some 10 minute ones that they can sneak in every now and then, um, that works for them. So that's, that's what those courses were meant to do. Still to come on College Cast. There's sort of two paths that I preach, I guess you'd say, <laughs> to kind of escaping a little bit of anxiety. One's more of a long-term skills-based solution. The other's more of a short-term, this can help you right now kind of solution. I think that gives a good uh, indicator as to how wide ranging the issue of anxiety and, and mental health challenges are for all kinds of different uh, subgroups. It, it's affecting all groups across our population. So, you know, I noticed in one of the surveys we just recently did, 
we asked uh, participants to if they felt comfortable giving a, an overview of what their situation was like and what kind of concerns they saw for next semester. And I wanted to read one because it was actually, you know, I thought it would be good leading into our conversation about anxiety. And this is a, a third year business student who said, my biggest concern is being able to pay rent and my bills while going to campus full time. My work situation has changed due to COVID and I need to work full time to support myself. In addition, I'm still concerned about becoming ill due to being on campus. I have family members who have serious life-threatening reactions to contracting COVID, and this has made me concerned that I will have similar side effects or get them sick. This is not an isolated uh, response. Uh, We're getting a lot of these kind of concerns from students. So why don't we start with First of all, what is anxiety and, you know, how does it happen physiologically? So, so I think, by the way, just to start, one of the one of the things I sometimes try to describe is a silver lining. It doesn't feel like it at the time. The silver lining in all this is, you know, before the pandemic, mental health challenges were something we often thought other people sort of dealt with. If, if you're not feeling anxious now, there's something wrong with you. I think, I think we've all felt directly ourselves um, mental health challenges, whether, you know, we like to admit it or, or not. And I think that's a potential silver lining because it's real to us all now. And I think there is an opportunity with a question like yours for us now to say, okay, I do feel anxiety. What the heck is that? And and I think, you know, we can start to understand that a lot of these things that seem like mysterious mental health um, issues are in fact just relatively simple reflections of our, of our evolution, of our biology. So in the case of anxiety specifically, um, we've got two sort of ways of being. So this is, we have something called our, our peripheral nervous system, which is how our brain connects to our body. And it interacts with the body through neural signals, but also through hormones that are released and, and put the body in different states. There's really two states. Um, the first one we call rest and relax, uh, rest and digest, sorry. When you're kind of chilled out, when you're sitting on the couch and, and enjoying yourself, your body kind of says, okay, you've been eating food all day. Let's take that food. Let's separate the nutrients from the waste. Let's get rid of the waste. Let's deliver the nutrients to the rest of the body. And that's kind of what your body is doing. And you kind of tune out from the world a little bit and and you relax. Um, But when, let's say you're relaxing on the couch and let's say you're home alone and upstairs, let's say you hear a smash in the window. And so suddenly you've got a part of your brain called the amygdala. It's kind of like your spider sense um, that says, oh, there's danger up there. And it immediately triggers your body into the other state, which is the fight or flight. Uh, Your heartbeat starts going faster. Your breathing becomes shallower and fast. That's your body getting oxygen to all of your muscles. And it's making you super strong and super ready to deal with whatever's coming. Your digestive processes shut down. It's kind of like, don't worry about that now. Um, We have other things to worry about. We have to fight this thing that's going on. And critically, the blood to your frontal lobes decreases. Uh, We sort of become a more primitive version of ourselves. The more primitive parts of the brain and the limbic system take over. And so we're not really good at thinking things through. It's more like, you know, your brain is kind of saying to you, this isn't a time for thinking. This is a time for acting. Like either go and take that thing on or get the heck out of here. Uh, And there is sometimes, sometimes people talk about freeze too. There is sometimes a time when we sit there for a while and go, which of these two options am I going to take? And then we take one. Um, and so, you know, there can be a freeze period. That anxiety is, is that reaction. But the, the important point is we evolved in a world where those threats tended to be what we call acute. They popped out at us. 
We had to deal with them um, and we did deal with them and then they were gone. Uh, and so this is what this reaction is meant to do, solve a problem that's just popped up in front of us by either fighting it and defeating it or fleeing it and getting away from it. The modern world is full of what we call chronic stressors. They don't go away. Uh, so this could be like a bad relationship you're in. It could be a, a bad work environment where you don't get along with your boss, but you have to go in every single day. Or it could be a pandemic, a global pandemic. Every morning you wake up, COVID is still there. And so our fight or flight systems have been a little engaged all the time. That's what makes us feel that energy. That's oxygen rich um, blood going to your muscles. That gives you that sort of tingling feeling. That's what makes it sometimes harder for us to think, more likely to lose our temper. Um, and, and it gets us thinking about those things that have us anxious. And so that student you talked about, you know, if I go into university, I'm worried about getting sick. I'm worried about this. How are they ever going to learn when their mind is being occupied by all of these, these fears and worries and doubts? And, and, and that's sort of, and, and, and the other critical point, by the way, is if that system stays active too long, it starts to impair your immune system. You actually become more susceptible to things like viruses. So for all of these reasons, you know, I think it's important that people learn about this reaction, but learn that they can, here's the mind control, that they can kind of get behind the driver's wheel a little bit and say, okay, I'm never going to escape anxiety, not during a pandemic. It's going to keep coming back, but I can at least every now and then have a break. And maybe some of the breaks that I have could be breaks that actually um, counteract the negative effects of anxiety. Uh, and they do that by, by releasing different hormones that counteract the negative effects, primarily of cortisol, which is the stress hormone that causes so much damage over time. Yeah. And I think that uh, we can also explore a little more when you have these responses. You talked about acute versus chronic. We're facing a lot more chronic, uh, chronic stressors. Maybe you can speak to what strategies can we have in place to knowing, knowing these kind of physiological explanations. What kind of things do we have in place that'll help us combat uh, anxiety? Yeah, there's sort of two paths that I preach, I guess you'd say, to kind of escaping a little bit of anxiety. One's more of a long-term skills-based solution. The other's more of a short-term, this can help you right now kind of solution. So let's do the short-term first. The short-term is just the idea of using the environment, becoming more mindful of your interactions with the environment, how they make you feel, and then using that information. So let me let me give you an example on the bad side first. You know, when, when COVID started, we all wanted a bunch of information because it was unknown. I found that I was watching the news uh, for hours a day. Um, and I was also talking to reporters. And so I was basically living in the world of COVID and shock, shock. It was what was on my mind almost all the time. And I had very high levels of anxiety while I was doing all that. Um, one of the things I had to learn was to diet my digestion of the news. So, so basically say you only get to watch the news at these points in time. You know, the news, when you stare at it, it's, I sometimes say it's like staring at the bear. If you think of the bear as the threat. It's like staring at the threat. And of course, it's going to fill your mind. So what you can do instead is, is important. And, and I always talk about two classes of, of positive things. One are things that just take you away from the anxiety. And that can be that's very personal, I think, very individual. An example for me is I learned how to use GarageBand during all of this. And, and I can create songs in GarageBand every night, eight o'clock. I go down. I spend an hour just doing that because I know that when I'm doing that, that fills my head. 
that's that's all I'm thinking about. And so the pandemic is gone for that hour. So at least I have that hour. So if there's, you know, if it's a trashy soap opera, if it's the mask singer, it doesn't matter. If 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 it gives you, you know, release from anxiety, realize that and say, okay, I want more of this. I want to schedule this time. Um, be be selfish about those times because they will help you be yourself the other times. The really good mojo things, the activities I really like to recommend are things that involve singing dancing, laughing, or social interactions. And we'll probably come back to social interactions more, but but our bedrock mental health connection uh, is through those who love us and those we love. Uh, and so connecting with those people in the right way, we could have a whole discussion about that, but that's very important too. Uh, those activities, so I, I sometimes sum them up in, the word, in one word, karaoke. If you had to do one thing, <laughs> if you have a karaoke night with your family where you're singing and dancing and laughing, they release positive hormones into your system. And you can feel that. You, you know, we all know what it feels like to feel good. And so the other thing I say is, as you go through life, if you notice, I feel good right now. What just made you feel good? And whatever that thing is, can, can you use that? Can you now schedule more of that into your life uh, to literally bring on this good feeling? So this is you getting mind control and you saying, I'm going to every now and then make sure I have times like this because they are healing. They literally, you know, we, we say laughter is the best medicine. It's a pretty darn good one. And let's talk laughter, by the way, just, just to be kind of funny about it. Okay. How do you do laughter? Well, maybe it's a show that makes you laugh. That's kind of great. There's even crazy things like if you go to YouTube and, and look for laughter yoga or laughing yoga, it's the weirdest thing. And it's amazing how it'll work. You have to you have to almost trust me on this. You'll have especially if you have multiple of you in the room, there'll be some person that starts by doing something silly like just repeat after me. Ho, 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 he, 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 ha, ha, ha. And they're just and they're willing to be as silly as whatever. And so you start saying it. And at some point it, it erupts into laughter. Just real laughter. Nobody knows what they're laughing at. They're laughing over at the stupidity of the whole situation and the silliness. It doesn't matter. You feel great. And you can literally throw on a laughter yoga thing or create a playlist of songs that make you happy, you know, whatever it may be. But start to see that those things are medicine and, and use them, schedule them in your day, use them as a chance to give yourself a break. So, so that's the sort of quick thing, you know, you can start doing that today, so to speak, uh, and, and schedule a day that has those. The other path, which is more when I went down with the police officers, um, is one about, I told you about the rest and digest and the fight and flee. And they're kind of like two sides of the coin. You can't be in both at the same time. So if you want to get out of fight or flee, the best way, you, you never want to focus on that which you want to get rid of. So, so if you want to get rid of anxiety, don't focus on anxiety because what you focus on, you're giving strength to. So if you focus on the anxiety, you're making it stronger. Kind of like that guy saying, you know, I worry about all these things. If you can focus on the opposite, the opposite is rest and, and digest. And we've all heard people say the following to us at some point. If you get all excited, if you get all anxious, take some deep breaths, slow, deep breaths. That is what they're actually saying there is get in touch with your rest and digest. That's the way you breathe when you're resting and digesting slow, deep breaths. And so if you do do slow, deep breaths, you start to push your body that direction. You can do better. Um, there, are, there are audios online called guided relaxation where they will walk you through this process. 
uh, where you'll feel like it, you'll just be listening to somebody telling you to flex a bunch of muscles for a while, really tight, but then release them and feel how great it feels when you release the tension. They'll do this through your whole body. After about 15 minutes, you'll be laying down feeling like you had a massage, even though you were just laying in bed by yourself listening to this stuff. It was very relaxing. And if you get to know that feeling, you get really intimate with it. You can reach a point where you can sort of summon that feeling. Uh, and that's what we're trying to teach police officers, that if they're suddenly in a situation where, you know, it's feeling really dangerous, if they can pull some of that relaxation over them, then that can kind of let them keep their head about them, keep the blood in their frontal lobes, which is what they where they need it uh, at the time um, and that sort of thing. But that is a skill where you really have to learn um, and do it on a regular basis. Um, but what, what's great about that is this is a great thing to do just before you go to bed, uh, because it really does relax you. It really does get your body in a good position. So yes, you have to practice it, but if you can make a point of saying, okay, 15 minutes before bed, I'll listen to one of these and then I'll drift off. Um, you'll probably find it very effective for helping your sleep. And that's really important for your mental health as well. Yeah. You know, while you were, you were talking about the practice of, of meditation, of slow breathing, getting in touch with that breast and digest aspect. Um, you know, there are a lot of resources that came to mind that are available for these. There's Headspace, you know, Audible, like relaxing books. One thing I wonder if you could explore a little more on this notion of sleep hygiene, maybe for students having varying schedules, competing assignments, and maybe you could you talk about the importance of sleep hygiene a little bit. 100%. Yeah, yeah. So sleep is one of those interesting things that we see in psychology. A lot of um, psychological disorders include sleep disorders, that sort of part, that constellation that comes with it. And we also generally know that if you're not getting enough sleep, any bad thing in your life is many times worse. Um, you just lose the ability to kind of cope with negative events that, that come to you and they all feel really, really bad. So one of the best things you can do, therefore, is to get a nice, regular night's sleep. But how do you do that? Um, a lot of the data we have, interestingly, or some of the data we have on this comes from looking at people who, who own dogs or didn't own dogs and then do own dogs. And there was always this interesting finding that they sleep better um, when you own a dog. Why do you sleep better when you own a dog? Um, it's primarily because dogs like routines. They insist on routines. They want to go for their walk at the same time. They want their food at the same time. They like to go to sleep at the same time. And so when you have that critter that demands your attention and your time, and it likes a locked-in schedule, what we find is the human schedule becomes more scheduled. more, And, and that's the key to, to healthy living. So if you can possibly go to bed at the same time every night, get up at the same time every night, and if you could throw in eating your meals at roughly the same time, your body will be really happy. We have something called the circadian rhythms in our body. Our bodies go through these rhythms every day, and the rhythms kind of lock into um, when we're waking up and when we're going to sleep. So if we do that consistently, then our mind is alert when we want it to be alert. It's ready to go to sleep when we want it to go to sleep. But if we keep mixing when we go to bed and go to sleep, we are basically putting ourselves in a situation that's that that's like what we call jet lag, right? When we travel a large distance and our internal body doesn't match the external world, we feel like crap. We, we just don't feel like we're functioning very well. And that's what happens if you keep changing when you sleep. You're, you're just not at your best. Sometimes life doesn't let us, you know, have this regimented um, time, but the more we can do that and the more we can, uh, when we can, we try to strict, to, um, get to a sort of strict bedtime and wake up time. 
it's hugely powerful and make you feel so much better. Um, if you can sneak in a little bit of aerobic exercise, by the way, <laughs> these, these are kind of what I call the foundations of mental health, good sleep, nutritional food, aerobic exercise three times a week. Those things all just help you cope with, with the crap that kind of runs that you'll run into in, in your day-to-day -day life. Keep your bedroom as a bedroom as well. So this is one of the things that students find really hard. Don't bring the schoolwork into the bed. Don't sit on your bed with your laptop on your lap trying to do schoolwork. You're, you're, you're confusing your brain. It wants the bedroom to be a place of sleep and relaxation, not a place of stimulation. So if you can separate those, if you can have your study work area uh, where you go and where your technology is, but when you walk into your bedroom, I mean, this is, uh, you know, we, we talk about how to get a good sleep and you have old people like me saying, you know, go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time. Honestly, the real problem with a lot of students is they bring their phone to bed and they check their phone at various times. They leave the notification on to whatever. Get rid of that phone at, at night. Just say, I, I don't need to know what's going on in the world from midnight till 8 a.m. or whatever it is. You know, that's probably the biggest sleep hygiene thing that a lot of young people could do. Still to come on College Cast. There's something called the reflected self, which I think is a cool thing to kind of think about and understand. And it says that every interaction we have, again, the nonverbals the other person gives us back tells us what they think about us. It tells us, do they like us? Do they think we're attractive? Do they think we're funny? Do they think we're trustworthy? You know, all of these sorts of things, are we entertaining? Um, we kind of feel from their interaction with us. And so as we have these interactions with person after person, you can almost imagine every one of them as sort of a mirror um, reflecting back who we are. Yeah, I think there's been in this kind of phenomenon too, what we've seen with the pandemic, that technology has really had to take off and all these different uh, Zoom platforms, different kind of meeting platforms, all these um, different technologies that have developed. In some ways, this rise of technology has outstripped our ability to, you know, cope. So it's it's very addicting, right, to to have your phone right before you go to bed. But like you said, you don't need to know. You got to put yourself first. You got to be a little selfish, like you said. Uh, I think the last piece of that supports you need is having those human connections. We are seeing in the pandemic now such a need for social connection, whereas I think maybe before we we didn't or we we didn't realize, you know, how important those even those micro interactions are. I wonder if you could talk about the importance of social connection and, and maybe ways we can boost our connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. So, so many things we can talk about here. Um, what, one of the things is let's continue with a, with the tech thing a little bit and just say the following, let, what, when it comes to social connections, it's about emotional connection, not intellectual connection. So if I can make that point a little bit, I think a lot of young people are in a difficult situation now where they're at a time of their lives where, you know, Abraham Maslow would say they're worried all about social connections and building out their social connections. Um, so this is a time when they're leaving their parents, literally, um, or have left their parents. They're on to their life as, as an independent individual. And a big part of that is establishing your network of friends, potentially that significant other you'll be with for the rest of your life. And, and students at university age, that's a big priority for them psychologically is kind of getting that done. At the same time, they've grown up with these stinking phones uh, and social networks and social networks give you the illusion of having a, a network of friends. 
but it tends to be very shallow, the relationships that we have. You know, it's like we like something or we share something. Oh, if someone shares something, wow, that's amazing. If they comment on it, okay, that's great. This is the extent of, of, of what we do. And it's all what I would call verbal. Um, whereas what I always like to point out is I, I sometimes go back to the, the old classic phone example. And, and I will say to, to students these days, you at least watch Stranger Things. And you know, on Stranger Things, when they show people in the 80s, they show these kids talking on the phone for hours. You know, we did that. Um, but here's what to understand about a phone. Um, if you're if you and I are talking on the on the phone, we're, we're saying whatever we're saying. There's the words. But there's all the nonverbals. And so if I were saying to you, hey, I was walking down by the lake and there were a bunch of young people, a whole bunch of them, none of them wearing masks. And they all came right at me and I had to sort of push myself through them to get to, to, to continue on. You would probably do something like or make some sound that says nothing verbally. But emotionally, it says, oh, man, that must have been annoying and frustrating. I've been in situations like that. I'm with you, buddy. Oh, that sucks. That's what we need, right? It's, it's not whatever you say verbally. It's that, wow, he was listening. He was with me emotionally. And, and he kind of cared about that. And the people who really care about us give us those sorts of nonverbals. And so I, I want to talk about two people, the, the deep connections and the, and, and the sort of shallow, quick ones. But those deep connections... I really recommend that people reach out to those people and use something like a phone or face-to-face -face if you have that ability or whatever, but understand that those nonverbals really are important and they're what make us feel loved and connected. Uh, and that gives us a, a huge amount of support. So at the same time, we can look at these other quick little inter interactions we have during the day, going to the grocery store, talking to the clerk, um, you know, just in coffee line, we see a colleague and that we don't talk to much, but we talk to them a little bit. Um, maybe might be a student or two that I run into in the hallway that I talk to. All of those little sort of micro interactions, they also play a role in our, in our psychological health. And um, there, there's something called the reflected self, which I think is a cool thing to kind of think about and understand. And it says that every interaction we have Again, the nonverbals the other person gives us back tells us what they think about us. It tells us, do they like us? Do they think we're attractive? Do they think we're funny? Do they think we're trustworthy? You know, all of these sorts of things, are we entertaining? Um, we kind of feel from their interaction with us. And so as we have these interactions with person after person, you can almost imagine every one of them as sort of a mirror um, reflecting back who we are. Uh, and so by the end of the day, we've seen a lot of different reflections of ourselves, and that kind of feeds our sense of self. In the pandemic, a lot of those things have disappeared. And it's like somebody took all the mirrors down in our home, and we've gone a long time without really seeing ourselves. And, and while a lot of people were describing this feeling of being sort of adrift and not really kind of knowing what they're about anymore and, and whatnot, um, that is not surprising. And, and that also shows that, you know, we need our deep social connections at one level to really give us the support. But even all of those other little social connections are playing a big role in kind of letting us know who we are and what we're about. So yeah, absolutely critical. You know, physical distancing, yes. Social distancing, no. Um, this is a time for socially coming closer to people and then finding a way to kind of do those two things at the same time, to be physically separate while being socially close, which is the challenge. Yeah. And I think to follow up on that, maybe um, some tangibles on how to improve your, your deep connections and quick interactions. I know you mentioned uh, phone and kind of 
communicating non-verbally, having those opportunities. Maybe you could just talk about how do I improve my, as a student, young person, instructor, whatever, how do I improve my deep connections and how do I improve my, you know, these transient uh, or quick interactions? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing I like to say to them is you can, <laughs> it's possible. Uh, and it's not even really that challenging to some extent, but a, a lot of students um, feel a lot of social anxiety because they've had so many of their social interactions online, asynchronously, non-face-to-face, they can find a face-to-face synchronous interaction really intimidating. Like, how do I negotiate this? Um, but there, uh, there's a book from 1931 I always like to throw out there, How to Win Friends and Influence People. An old Dale Carnegie book. Uh, it sounds like a hokey title, but in fact, it is exactly what it sounds like. It is him providing a number of, of concrete strategies. And, and just to give a sense of one, you know, let's imagine the dreaded uh, networking event that we all hate. We have to walk into a room full of strangers and you're supposed to just interact with people. You know, we all find that ridiculously stressful. But some of the tips in this book would say something like the following. Walk up to a table and start asking questions of the other people. You know, hey, where do you work? What's your role? What's part of that role? And if you have a few of these questions, people love to talk about themselves. So if you go and, and just ask them, tell me about yourself, tell me about your life, tell me about your work, tell me what you do. First of all, they will like you. They will be happy to do that. Secondly, you won't have to do a whole lot of work for a while. You can just listen. And as they tell you stuff, you can find what we call points of contact. Like, you know, oh, maybe they like Formula One. I like Formula One. They happen to mention that. Oh, now we have something we can talk about. And now it suddenly becomes fun, right? Because, oh yeah, this is a shared interest. Uh, and so just a little strategy like that But the critical thing is, you know, this book is full of those sorts of strategies, but to learn the strategy and then to practice it, that's the, that's the tricky part. So, so many people read and go, oh yeah, that sounds great. But then they get to that networking thing and they don't want to go anywhere and, and, and they don't. But if you practice it a few times, you learn something weird. You don't learn to love it. You know, I still don't learn. I still don't love these, these events, but you learn that, Hey, I can go in here and I, when I leave, I'll probably have some more connections and some more friends and have made some opportunities. Uh, it'll go all right. Everything will be fine. You know, it may not be my most favorite thing in the world, but it could be a valuable thing because, you know, this is the other thing with social connections. They're important for our mental health. They're also important for our future opportunities. Um, it literally, you know, we have that term, it's who you know. You know, it's not always who you know, but certainly the people you know often have uh, opportunities um, or bring opportunities to us uh, or connect us with opportunities. And so learning those skills, you know, will be really critical to your future success. And they are learnable. There, there are set skills. You can read about them, you practice them, and you can suddenly find, you know, four months from now, wow, I'm able to, to do well with people. You know, I can join a club with people I don't know, and I can make friends and, and things can work out really well. And that feels really good. Mm-hmm. You know, I think oh, this is something we could talk about for a long time, but I think that's a pretty good way to, to wrap things up. I think we can add these important um, toolkits and books that students can look into in our show notes. Um, I think we'll just finish up with a little soapbox part of the episode where you can talk about anything that we, you know, miss in the conversation, anything you wanted to cover. You can feel free to rant or rave about it, Steve. So uh, the floor is yours. <laughs> you warned me about the soapbox, but I haven't actually been thinking about it. And, and I usually have like a, a ton of these different soapboxes. But I think I think the one thing here, here's the one soapbox I think I would bring up. Um, when I talk to educational institutions, so yes, a university, um, but I'm also even thinking K to 12, I think we have an opportunity now 
to approach mental health in a different way. Um, to, for example, anxiety is almost the best mental health issue, which is kind of weird, but it's the best one in the sense that it's very easy to describe what's going on biologically. It doesn't reflect any sort of Freudian, whatever kind of stuff that people kind of worry about psychology. No, no, it's a much more straightforward thing. And we could be teaching children about anxiety and about managing anxiety. And you know, when you have that bully giving you a hard time or whatever, that's that's anxiety, you're in that anxious moment. And just like I talked about the cops being able to kind of keep their head about them and make good decisions when they're in those situations, we would like our kids to be able to do that. And so I think this is, this is potentially, you know, all those people who feel like, oh, we can't talk about mental health for various reasons. I hope they kind of start to say, no, no, I would like my, my kids to, to understand what's going on. I would like them to know some strategies. I would like them to be happier, more successful kids. And, and I think maybe we have the opportunity now to kind of bring that into in a more formal and structured way into a school system and kind of, you know, give our kids the tools they need to survive in this complex world, e even around social connection. You know, let's let's inform students. Let's let them know how important social connections are and what's the difference between a shallow one and a deep one. And, you know, let them go through the world sort of armed with knowledge and skills to tackle the complexities that, that life throws at all of us. Um, just one last thing there, Steve. If, uh, if listeners are looking to get more information about you know, your research or suggestions, maybe talks you've done or resources that you'd recommend, where should they look? Where would you direct them towards? I have a really big digital footprint. So, so if you just type my last name, you're going to find all kinds of stuff. But um, if, if you're interested in lectures, that kind of stuff, I have a YouTube channel um, and all the content is obviously available to everybody. On Coursera, search, search my name, you'll find a bunch of courses there as well. Um, but otherwise, yeah, you, you Google me and you'll you'll be shocked at what you find on some level. It's all over from mental health to ed tech to, to whatever. And, and I give a lot of webinars and presentations all, all across the board. Um, so I, I think I'm an easy guy to find. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of those resources we'll put in the show notes for listeners. But uh, this has been a fantastic conversation, uh, Steve. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Trevor. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's a wrap on our final episode of season one. Thanks for joining us listeners for our conversation with Steve Jordans, cognitive psychologist and professor at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. For more information on how to boost your social connections, combat anxiety, and other topics we discussed, check the show notes for links to Steve's recommended suggestions and other resources available to you. Like I mentioned, this is the last episode of season one as we head into the holiday season. So we'll be taking some time off and get back to you with a brand new episode for season two on Friday, January 14th. Wishing you all a wonderful holiday season and we'll catch you next year on College Cast.